Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. We, we are going to be in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 for the next couple weeks. We've been in a, we're in the middle of a four-week series on the Sermon on the Mount, and our goal in this is to essentially unpack uh, the principles that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, which ultimately turn our behaviors upside down with the purpose of disrupting the beliefs of our world. Right? That's why Jesus Christ sat down on a hill and spoke to his followers, because he wanted to lay out principles. He wanted to lay out guidelines. He wanted to lay out a calling and commands that would change his people's behavior in order to disrupt the beliefs of this world. Jesus Christ wants to change the way that we live so that he can use us to change change the lives around us. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And that's why this morning we'll see that Jesus Christ is calling his people to live a lot like this. Man, takes you back to Tuesday with your roommates, right? Like this is just your day-to-day life. Uh, Man, much to the confusion of this sister, uh, the original girl is very distraught. Why? Because she doesn't want to see her siblings leave, right? She loves them and she wants them to stay with her. She has revealed through her actions what her attitude is and her attitude being that people are her top priority. And the reality, though, the truth is that we generally fall into one of these two camps. We're either crying and distraught over the sake of, for the sake of other people, or maybe we're just sort of standing there holding our little buggy like, what in the world is going on? And I would argue that many times our tendency, my tendency is to be that sister, the one who sees others maybe leaving or sees the needs of others or sees other people and yet does not necessarily make them a priority, right? We don't always make other people our top priority. How much we value other people often changes based on who they are, right? A lot of times it depends on maybe where they are. Many times it changes based on, uh, on what we want in the moment. Many times it changes based on what they've done in the past, right? If it's someone that we don't necessarily know, if it's someone that there's a division between us and them, right, we're, we're not necessarily going to value them. We pick and choose. We'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm busy right now. I've got these things that I need to take care of. I've got these needs and desires that I need to satisfy. So I'm not going to necessarily put some time and energy into this person or into caring about that need of that other individual. Or sometimes we think, you know what, that person has hurt me. So I'm not going to value them. I'm not going to move towards them. I'm not going to be loving towards them because they've done something that I disagree with. Maybe something that it directly, adversely affected my life. And we give ourselves a pass. We give ourselves a pass to care more about ourselves and about our needs over others. And our actions, what they do is they reveal an attitude. And that attitude says that people are not always a priority. But my question is, as believers... What should our attitude be? If we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, if we've been adopted out of sin and wrath and death and destruction, and we've been adopted into the family of God, 
sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, followers of Jesus Christ. What should our attitude be towards people? What do we see demonstrated by our ultimate example? Jesus Christ, who's not only our savior, but also our perfect example. What was his attitude? Right? What, is his, what did his actions reflect? How did he see other people? I would argue that when we look in the Sermon on the Mount, when we look throughout the ministry, the entire ministry of Christ, we'll see that he wants his people to live as he lived. He wants his people to make other people a priority, regardless of where they are, regardless of what, they, what we want, and regardless of what they've done. No excuses. People should be a priority. This is what we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. We're going to be skipping around a little bit, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, we see where Jesus Christ is speaking to the gathered crowd. He's speaking to all these people that are sitting and listening and wanting to hear what is his plan, what are his desires for his people, right? This isn't something that he's saying applies to the entire world. He's not saying, I want everyone to behave in this particular way. He's saying, I want my people to behave in this certain way because in doing so, they're gonna disrupt the beliefs of the world. Christ was not worried about changing the behavior of the world. He wanted to change the belief of the world. He wanted to make sure that people saw him as the light and the truth, he, he wanted people to see him as the way to knowing the Father. That there were no actions, there is no behavior that will save you. He says, I, I don't want you to buy into that myth, into that fallacy. He says, I need you to realize that only I can live the life of perfection. Only I can earn the righteousness and the right to be in relationship with God the Father. Only I, Jesus Christ, am able to obtain that. But I'll tell you, I, Jesus Christ, will give it to you. It's a free gift of grace if you just trust in me. And he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount, and if you've done that, right, if you're a part of my family, I do want you to live differently. I want you to live in the way that I've lived because in doing so, it's gonna make people stop and stare and ask questions and ultimately it's gonna point them to me, Jesus Christ. So he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift. So right off the bat, Jesus Christ is calling his followers to make other people a priority regardless of where they are. In other words, if there is a division, right? It's not even something that we've created. He says, it's your brother has something against you. He doesn't say whether it's justified or not. He says, but there's just something that, ha that your brother is holding against you. He says, in that moment, you need to move towards that person. You need to take it upon yourself to take the initiative and move towards that other individual for the sake of reconciliation, to make that relationship whole. Jesus Christ is calling us to pursue others, to prioritize others regardless of where they are. And he's laying out the principles of just healthy conflict. Right? This is just conflict resolution 101. My wife and I have done premarital for the last few years, premarital counseling for individuals. And man, a lot of our time and energy is spent talking about communication and conflict because it is the foundation upon which every long-term relationship is built. Whether it's your spouse, a friend, a family member, you need to have healthy conflict, right? Conflict itself is inevitable, but its healthiness depends on you. How constructive and healthy that conflict is depends on your decisions. And so Jesus Christ is laying out these principles of first and foremost saying, look, you need to make sure that you have short accounts 
with the people that you have conflict with. It says if you're in the moment and you're bringing a gift and you realize it in that moment that you have this thing, leave it. Right? It says leave your gift right there. Leave the altar. He's specifically creating this like almost ridiculous image, this ridiculous picture of someone coming forward and, and being in the middle, right? It'd be like if you were going and sitting down for your test, your final exam in a class, and you suddenly realize, oh, my friend didn't appreciate the way that I ate too many of his Twizzlers last night. I gotta go. And you just put your pencil down and you just run out of the room, right? That, that's the image he's creating. It's this ridiculous, disruptive moment. And he's getting at the fact that, look, we need to keep short accounts. As soon as we realize that there's a fault, as soon as we realize there's a wrong, I mean, we need to move towards that person. And we do this because it's eliminating the room that, that for growth and spread. In other words, it's eliminating room for growth, meaning if you're just sitting on something or if it's something you felt wrong or slighted and you don't address it quickly, there's room for it to just grow in your heart. Right? There's room for that bitterness to just, to just grow. And you think, oh, Steve ate my lucky charms. Steve. And you just kind of you just kind of simmer on it and just think about it. You're like, you know what? He probably ate all the marshmallows first, like a maniac. And you know, like you, you just you think through this process. And if, if you have that space, when you begin to build on it, you dwell on it, and then it's gonna spread. It's not just growing with you, but it's gonna spread out to other people. You're gonna wind up talking to the other friends or, or, or talking with roommates or, or whoever it might be, and you're gonna be like, yeah, Steve ate my lucky charms. It was not magically delicious in one bit. Like it was a very wrong of him to do this. Like I can't, oh, Steve. And, and it's just gonna, it's just gonna spread. Jesus Christ says, don't even give room for that. He says, move to that person immediately. This is first, right? Not only is he getting at this idea of short accounts, but he's saying you need to initiate, right? First, you. He says, doesn't, don't just like wait. This says first go. He doesn't say first wait and for them to approach you and to realize that they're wrong. He says, first, you need to go. You need to initiate, Right? You need to model what Jesus, or you need to demonstrate or live out what Jesus Christ demonstrated and modeled. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. Even though no man chases the Father, the Father moved towards us, initiated with us, grabbed a hold of us, saved us. While we were still enemies, we were still children of wrath. Jesus Christ says, You need to take it upon yourself to move towards that person that has something against you. And this is hard. But in God's grace, he forced me to do this like multiple times this week because that's just the way it goes. I had to move towards my spouse. I had to move towards my staff. I had to move towards students. Seek reconciliation and forgiveness. It's hard. But it's what we're called to be. We're called to be people who keep a short account. We're called to be people who initiate. We're called to be people who go face to face. He says, you need to go to that brother. He says, don't just wait. He says, don't, don't like stop and, and write a letter and send it to him or like post it anonymously under his straw pillow. I don't know. Like, don't just like make these things happen. Right? He says, you need to make sure that you're going to him and you're having an individual encounter with him. You need to talk to him face to face. Because man, there's something that is lost in written communication. There's something that's lost in roundabout ways of communication. There's a context and there's a, there's a fluidity that, that, need, that only takes place in, in a face-to-face interaction. So he says, you need to make sure you're moving to this person. And one of our elders here at Grace will hammer, will say every single day, he'll say it over and over and over again. He'll say, you need to avoid a keyboard in two specific instances in your life. He says, you avoid a keyboard if you're mad because you're gonna say something you regret. And you need to avoid a keyboard if you're just madly in love. Because same thing, you're gonna say something real dumb and you need to avoid 
keyboards. You go and you talk to that person. If you're in either one of those camps, have that face-to-face interaction. That's how you have healthy conflict, and that's how you seek reconciliation, right? Jesus Christ is saying you need to go to this person. You need to be reconciled. Again, what reconciliation is, is it's restoring a relationship to its original status. It's not just walking in and be like, hey, I got mad at you for you, my lucky charm. Sorry, Ugh, bye. Like, and then leaving. Reconciliation is moving towards that person saying, hey, I see this division and, and I want to fix it. So what can I do? What can I say? What can I do better? How could we move forward? How can we approach this moment not with the goal of, of winning and defeating the other person and, oh, it turns out I was right all along. But how do we approach this moment with the goal of oneness, of unity? What can both of us do to move forward and be stronger, to be more united afterwards? Again, I mean, every relationship, every community is gonna have conflict, but Christian conflict can and should be better. It should be healthier, and it should make us stronger. It's a beautiful opportunity for us to display to the world that Jesus Christ is right, that he's calling us to a better life. So who do you need to move towards? Who is it right now that's coming right into your mind that you want to push out and not think about? But who's it that you need to move towards? A friend or the family member? coworker, that roommate? Who is it that maybe has an issue with you that you wouldn't even say is justified? You wouldn't say that it's right? But you know what? You still need to move towards them. Who is that? Where does that need to take place? Jesus Christ says, I mean, I want you to be a people who love and prioritize and move regardless of where those other people might be. He says, I also want you to be a people that, that prioritize others regardless of what you might want in that moment. He goes from talking about this division between brothers and he starts talking about three seemingly almost unrelated issues. He talks about lust, he talks about divorce, and he talks about oaths. Right, the classic, the classic three. Lust, divorce, and oaths, right? You remember that talk from, I don't know, junior high. Okay, guys, time for the oaths talk. Oh, no. Like, that's weird. Like, we never talk about oaths. But Jesus Christ is a very, uh, he's very intentional with this discussion. He's very intentional with the way that these things are grouped. He's lumping together lust and divorce and oaths because what happens is that in each one of these areas, in each one of these contexts, we have a tendency to put what we want over other people. Lust is dependent upon objectifying and dehumanizing other humans. Divorce is dependent many times upon making people into obstacles that we are meant to overcome for personal happiness. Oaths, specifically the breaking of oaths, are are generally used as a way to manipulate people. You're seeing people as an opportunity for profit and personal gain. Jesus Christ says, no, I, I want you to value others regardless of what you might want in the moment. Right, lust, I mean, lustful thoughts and lustful actions and lustful pursuits, it, it dehumanizes people. And, and many times we don't realize that, we don't really think about that, we don't want to think about that. And yet we're just, we're failing to recognize the full extent and the implications and the effects of our actions. Thank <laughs> you.
Sometimes we're just not ready for it, right? <laughs> Sometimes we've been like pulling that arm. We're like, no, this is pretty cool. This is, oh, what? Oh, and when we run. Because we don't understand the full implications of our actions. We don't understand the effects of our desires and, and our attitudes, right? What we've found recently, okay, this is a study by the Barna Group, and they're just looking at, they're looking at culture at large, they're looking at American society at large, but specifically for Christians, right? I wanna zero in on this, because this is what, again, this is what Christ is doing. Christ is laying these things out for Christians, for believers, for his followers. So if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you don't need to worry about this stuff. You don't need to worry about these behavioral changes. Jesus Christ is not calling you to follow a new moral law to somehow obtain salvation. Jesus Christ wants to call you into a relationship with himself, into a relationship with the God who made you and loves you. That's his priority. And once you're in that family, he says, hey, here's some ways to live. Here's some guidelines to follow. And in doing so, you're gonna bring more people to know me. You're going to direct more people to see who I am and what I'm about. You're going to change what they believe. All right, so he's looking at Christians. Barna Group, they're looking at all people, but specifically when they were looking at Christians, they found that 72% of self-identified Christian college men, 36% of self-identified Christian college women reported frequent pornography consumption, right? So frequent, they define that as about at least three or four times a month, right? So 72% of men, 36% of women in college, self-identified Christians say, yeah, that's something that I am a part of regularly, right? That, that is a frequent part of my life that I'm, I'm pursuing these lustful desires. And we need to recognize, you know what, that's going to have effects on ourselves, it's going to have effects on others. Indiana University, in the secular study, they were doing a meta-analysis of 22 different studies on pornography. They're looking at all these different studies over the span of 1978 to 2014, and over that almost 40 years, what they found in seven different countries, right? So they're looking at a broad range, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And what they found was that pornography consumption is every single time, it's associated with an increased likelihood of committing acts of verbal and physical sexual aggression. Across all those years, across all those countries, man, this correlation was the same. It hurts the people who are partaking in it. It's hurting the people that are in the midst of those pursuits. The University of Tennessee in 2012 did a study of college women who were in heterosexual relationships with men. And, and what they found is that as they were talking with these women, they were, they were finding that there was a large number of these women that had uh, partners who were uh, actively you know, consuming pornography. And so they said, hey, let's, let's really zero in on these people. Let's see kind of what those effects might be. And then talking with these women, they found that time and again, they were, that the young women were suffering from diminished self-esteem, relationship quality, and physical relationship satisfaction correlated with their partner's pornography usage. It's not just hurting the people in the midst of it, it's, it's hurting the people that are with the people in the midst of it. Recently, the uh, American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, okay, so just a, a group, a large group of lawyers here in our nation uh, who deal with uh, family law, what they were finding was that 56% of divorce cases, 56%, so just over half of modern divorce cases, involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. One of the reasons listed on the sheet is you're talking about, you know, why, why are we pursuing this divorce, all this kind of stuff. 56% said, well, there's one party has an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. This lustful desire, this, this pursuit, this objectification of other people, I mean, it sticks around after your wedding day. 
and it can destroy your marriage. And yet, the Barna Group found that in talking with people and surveying just tens of thousands of individuals, they found that 75% of young adults, okay, 18 to 25, people in your range, 75%, three out of four, said that cheating on your spouse is morally wrong. Right? Three out of four said, yeah, if you cheat on your spouse, then you, that's morally wrong. Okay. But that's compared to only 32%, so about a third of young adults would say that watching pornography, consuming pornography is morally wrong. And yet, when Jesus Christ looks at that, when Jesus Christ is speaking to his people, when he's addressing not just their outward actions, but their inward attitudes, not just their outward behavior, but their inward belief, he says, man, if you are finding yourself lusting, if you're pursuing these desires, it's better for you to just rip that eye right out of your skull and throw it away. So if your right eye is causing you to sin, if you're engaging in these pursuits, man, you might as well just take that eye out. You might as well just cut off that hand because he knows. He's telling us, man, this is destructive. This is harmful. Everyone's gonna lose. And I, Jesus Christ, am calling you to a better life. The reality is that, man, when people become objects, everyone gets hurt. Everyone gets hurt people that you see online, the people that you think about on campus, the person with your ring on their finger, man, they're all gonna get hurt in the midst of those pursuits because you're dehumanizing humans, turning them into objects for personal pleasure. But we don't just dehumanize people in that way. A lot of times, man, we will turn people into obstacles. That's what divorce is generally founded upon. It's seeing, man, there's this other person who's interfering with my happiness, and so I'm just gonna kind of throw them away. I'm gonna discard this person because they're just an obstacle that I need to overcome. My daughter, Charlotte, is amazing. She's gonna be two in December, and she, man, she loves a lot of things in this world. She loves a lot of uh, different foods and toys, and, and she loves uh, to play with things or eat things, and, and when she does, I mean, she really zones in, man. If she's holding a cheese stick, seen here, man, she's gonna love that cheese stick, and she's, you know, as, which is perfect because, as we all know, Elsa, who she's pretending to be, also loves cheese sticks. Um, Elsa, who she also just calls Let It Go because she's trying to say Let It Go, and that's what she thinks Elsa's name is. And so she <laughs> will love that cheese stick, and she will eat that cheese stick, but there will come a point where that cheese stick outstays its welcome, right? And there's going to be a point where the toy that she's playing with or the food item she has, the book that she's reading, the spillable container of milk that she's holding Al says it's welcome, and when that happens, she just tosses it. Like literally, literally, she will just toss these things away from herself, like a barbarian. That <laughs> <laughs> has never been demonstrated for her in her life, as far as I know. I don't know, maybe my wife is different <laughs> behind closed doors. But she just will finish with that toy, she'll finish with that cheese thing, she'll be like, mm, done with that, like mm, another. Like she'll want to just move on with her life beyond that toy, beyond that book, beyond that food item. And she just tosses it. She just discards it. No remorse. It's just gone. And the reality is that, I mean, we do this with people. The Austin Institute, which is dedicated to studying family and marriage and divorce and these types of things, they found that in looking at divorces, right, after infidelity, so infidelity was the number one reason, one of the number one, it was the number one cause for people filing for a divorce. Uh, but as they were talking with couples that were getting divorced and going through the proceedings, uh, they would give multiple reasons, right? Most couples give actually a few reasons for that divorce, for filing for divorce. And what they found is that after infidelity, the next three Spouse, my spouse is unresponsive to my needs. I grew tired of making a poor match work. 
My spouse is immature. Those are the next three reasons. In other words, I'm not enjoying this. And the sad truth is that all of us have seen the idea of I want to be happy decimate families. We've either lived through it or we've seen it or we've heard it or we're watching it happen right now. I mean, let me tell you, our God has designed marriage to be enjoyed. But the ultimate goal of marriage is not our happiness. The ultimate goal of marriage is our holiness. So we see demonstrated for us, laid out for us in Ephesians 5, that marriage is meant to separate us, to set us apart, and to turn us into an illustration, a display of Jesus Christ's love for the church. God hates divorce. It's Malachi 2. Our God hates divorce. Now, Jesus Christ, in speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, says, you know what? There is some room. He says, you know, except for immorality. And he speaks more about that in Matthew 19. It's addressed in 1 Corinthians 7. And if you have questions about biblical grounds for divorce, which I will fully affirm, we can talk about that. I'm not going to get into it right now. But if you have questions about that, if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk after this. I'd love to talk. We can meet up. But generally, okay, broad strokes, our God hates divorce. And he desires reconciliation. He loves reconciling. He loves restoring. Why? Because he loves people. People he doesn't see as objects. People he doesn't see as obstacles. And people he also doesn't see as opportunities for personal gain. And yet many times when we find ourselves in these oaths, it's generally we're walking into situations seeking to manipulate other people for personal gain, right? So the oath that he's speaking about specifically here uh, in that kind of, con- in that historical context, he's talking about uh, these oaths that people were making in obligations and business dealings and these types of things. And essentially they were all built around manipulating others for personal gain. And this is something that we still get into, right? We, we might not necessarily talk about oaths or make all these oaths, but we use our words and our actions and we make promises and guarantees many times for the sole purpose of telling someone whatever they want to hear so that they'll do whatever we want them to do. I don't know if you've ever sold cars. I don't know if you've ever bought a car. Uh, but if you have, you would know it's a war zone out there. It's a dark place. I've had buddies sell cars, man. And I, I've, my wife and I actually just bought a car. Minivan? It's awesome. We can talk about it after if you have any questions, but (laughs) man, no matter where you go, man, I don't know what dealership you're going to visit. I don't know what town you're going to be in, but man, no matter where you go, it's incredible to see how many salesmen are willing to put their jobs on the line to give you that deal, right? It's amazing how many salesmen will tell you. I I heard this multiple times from multiple dealerships here in town, like two weekends ago. I don't know, like, "Hmm, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my job if I give you that kind of discount, but you know what? Maybe. Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> like, I'm like, well, I mean, you don't need to lose your job. But it's, it's a game, right? It's some strange game that we've decided to participate in as a society where we will hear salesmen say like, oh, you know, and it's not just cars. It's like other big purchases, homes, things like that. But they'll say like, well, I mean, you know, my kids like to eat, but oh, 
I guess we could go without for a month. Uh, you know, I could give you another $100 off or whatever it is. Man, it's, it's madness, but it's this weird game that we get into where we're saying things, we're making these promises and these guarantees, and we're saying, oh, yeah. and it's all for the purpose of manipulating other people to do what we want them to do. And Jesus Christ looks at the gathered people. He looks at his people and says, man, I want you to be different. He says, I want your yeses to be yes and your noes to be no. He says, I don't want you to have to resort to manipulation and these weird ways of kind of loopholes and all this. He says, I want you to be a people who are reliable. I want you to be a people who are honest. I want you to be a people who others can respect and trust based on what you say you're going to do. He says, that's who you need to be. Because otherwise you're letting your desires and your needs trump other people. And that's not what we're called to. But man, where do our desires tend to elevate themselves over others? Where is it that we want to use other people as objects or opportunities for game or, or gain? Or where do we see them as obstacles towards what we really need, what we really want? something to just kind of move out of the way. Where are you willing to use people for your own pleasure, your own gain? And we all do it. I do this. Where is it taking place in your life? Jesus Christ says, I need you to prioritize people regardless of, of where they might be, regardless of what you might want in that moment. And I need you to prioritize people regardless of what they've done. This is hard. That's what he says in 44, Matthew chapter five, verse 44. He says, I say to you, you need to love your enemy. You need to pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus Christ is calling his followers to make others a priority regardless of what they've done. He says, I want you to look out and see maybe those enemies you might have and you need to pray for them. You need to ask the Lord to show them mercy. He's alluding to this idea of common grace that, that God has in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite mercy, he's actually withholding the fullness of his wrath. He's withholding the fullness of his judgment. In our present age, he's saying, you know what? I'm gonna hold back some. I'm gonna still let you enjoy that sun. I'm gonna still let you enjoy that rain. I'm gonna still allow those of my, he's, gonna, he's saying, I'm gonna allow enemies to still prosper in certain ways. Because our God is gracious and merciful. And we need to recognize that, you know what? There's no one beyond God's grace. There's no one beyond it. It's gonna feel like it at times. But there are some people with no hope that are too far. People like this. Am I pregnant? Am I pregnant? Am I pargant? Am I pregnant? Am I pegnate? Help? Is there a possibility that I'm... Pregnant? Am I pregnant or am I okay? Could I be pregonate? How do I know if I'm pregnant? Can I be pregnant? Can u get pregante? Can u down a 20-foot water slide pegnat? How can I get my GF pregnant? What happen when get purgenat? What is the best time to sex to become pregnant? Does anyone know how many teens get pregnant a year? Are these systems of being Pregnant. If a woman has starch marks on her, wait. If a woman has starch masks on her body, does that mean she has been pregnant before? Period. Question mark. Did most you women feel pregnant before find out? I think I'm. 
pregnant with my 14th child. I think my dog is pregnant. 38 plus two weeks. Pregnant. <laughs> You know, some people just, it seems like they're beyond our help, right? It seems they're just too far gone. And, and that's a fallacy that we can fall into. And that's a lie that we can believe. That there are certain people, there's a certain person, or there's, there's that certain group, or there's that certain uh, political element, or there's that certain nation, or there's that certain religious affiliation, or there's that certain group of whoever it might be. And they're just, they're just too far gone. Right? There's just no hope for them. They're beyond God's grace. And yet our God <laughs> says that that is a lie. Says that is not true. And I'll tell you, if you're having an issue forgiving those people, if you're having an issue of forgiving a particular person in your life, if you're having an issue just you know, realizing that, you know, or, or asking God to extend grace to that people group, or again, that political party that, that religious affiliation, that group of individuals, that whatever it might be. If you're having issue with that, that's not just a forgiveness problem. Right? That, that's a gospel problem. That's a disconnect with who you are. That's not realizing that you know, we're all sinners. <laughs> None of us are righteous, not even one. And that yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's not recognizing the fact that, you know, we were all children of wrath. We were all, what Paul would say, children, or sorry, enemies of God. And yet, while we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he rose again so that we might be saved. He came out of the goodness of his heart. He came out of grace out of God's mercy, meaning grace, he's going to give us this gift that we don't deserve, this mercy, meaning he's going to spare us a judgment, a punishment that we do deserve. And he says, you know what? I love this world so much. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to die for those people because I want to have relationship with them. And in the meantime, you know what? I'm going to still have that sun rise on the evil and the good. And I'm going to send rain for the righteous and the unrighteous because God desires that all would know him. God wants all people to return to him. God wants all people to adjust their belief to recognize that they're sinners in need of a savior. He wants everyone to join this community. He wants everyone to be a part of this body. And the reality is that we should want that too, and yet we don't. Many times we find certain people who've done certain things and we draw lines and we make qualifications and we say, well, if you're in this box though, you're beyond hope. And I'm not gonna pray for those people. I'm not gonna talk about those people. And if they come up, I'm gonna hate them and I'm gonna be antagonistic towards them. I'm gonna talk poorly about them. And Jesus Christ says, that's not what you should be doing. You should be praying for those people. You should be asking God to extend mercy and grace because you know what? You didn't deserve it either. You crossed all those lines that God had drawn and you chose rebellion and you chose sin and you chose death and yet God saved you. So who are you to withhold grace from someone else? Who are you to draw your own line and say, no, that's, that's the line that God can't cross? Who are you to do that? He says, you need to be different. He says, this world's gonna pick and choose who they love, but I have a love that has no limit and I have a love that I wanna extend to all people and you as my people should be praying me, praying for me to do that. 
You should be asking the Lord to extend grace and mercy upon everyone, even your enemies. And man, that's hard. That's really hard. Because there's individuals in my life that have done things and hurt people that I love. And it is so hard for me to still pray for those people, to still see those people as worthy of being redeemed by God. And I know that there's people like that in your life. And I'm not saying it's easy. But I am saying that's what we're called to. As believers, Jesus Christ says, love your enemy. Pray for the ones who persecute you. Ask the Lord to step in to change those hearts because no one is beyond the grace of God. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a moment and we're going to take advantage of the fact that we're surrounded by brothers and sisters. And we're going to take advantage of the fact that we are like-minded individuals. Most of us are here because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And because of that, we're in a new family and we're united with one another. And we can pray with each other. We're, in fact, we're commanded in Scripture to gather together to pray with one another. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a, just a couple minutes and you're going to grab a, one or two partners, just depending on how numbers work out, find one or two people around you. And you're going to pray with each other. You're going to share briefly with one another, hey, this is someone that I need to move towards or, or someone that I need to value or someone I need to pray for. And you, can, you don't have to be specific. You can give a, just like a first name. You could just give a letter. You can say, I need to pray for K. Or I need to seek reconciliation with R. And you share that briefly with one another so that then you can pray for each other and pray that the Holy Spirit would, would move and empower you to make that shift, to initiate or to, to value, to, to pray. Because ultimately, we can't do these things on our own. Right? Jesus Christ is directing this at his community, not just because he's trying to be exclusive, but because he knows that those are the only people that are gonna have the Holy Spirit to be their constant guide, their constant counselor, their constant helper, the one who's going to produce the fruit that they need in their lives to carry these things out. We in and of ourselves can't just be better and do better, but we can position ourselves for the Lord's work to take place. We can position ourselves and ask God, Lord, I need you to move. I have the desire but Lord, I need you to provide the, the means and the motivation and the way to make this change. So share briefly with each other. Like, this is who I want to move towards or pray for. And then pray for each other. Say, God, let your spirit empower this to take place. Hello, and welcome to the Grace College Podcast. My name is Jacob Smith. And I'm Kevin Barra. And we are here on the back end of the sermons to give uh, a little bit more information um, on the sermons and also 
to dive a little bit deeper into what's going on in our college ministry. Yeah, so we're in the middle, smack dab in the middle, That's exactly right. in the middle actually right now, of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, what That's we're calling right. Upside Down Living. That's right. Uh, it's been really a joy to, to go through Matthew 5. Well, we've only been through five so far, and uh, just looking at how Jesus Christ is calling his followers uh, to live in ways that are contrary to the world around them, to essentially turn our behavior upside down uh, in order to disrupt the beliefs of our world so that if we're living out changed lives, uh, then it's going to affect the people around us. And I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, This past week, we uh, just got to talk about uh, the community that we're building, the community uh, that's formed on love, that's formed on moving towards people. Uh, at Anderson, we got to talk about essentially, I mean, you need to be prioritizing and moving towards people regardless of where they are, regardless of what you might want in the moment, regardless of what they've done to you. Uh, Kevin, uh, I know that you're really wanting to elaborate even on that last one of just like, what does that forgiveness look like? Like, what yeah. does that entail for our community. Well, it, it's, it's interesting. In this particular section, uh, you know, Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's he's contrasting the the common interpretation of his day versus the heart of the law. And each one of these uh, moves that Jesus makes is to, di- to drive a little bit deeper, more than uh, don't murder, but actually don't, don't harbor anger. And yeah. more than don't ha- commit adultery, but hey, don't don't harbor lust in your heart. And so he's driving to the heart of it. And, I, and as I'm wrestling with this, at the, one of the last pieces that he says in this section is um, where he says, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I, but I tell you that pr- to pray for those who persecute you. And he gives us an illustration from, the, from God the Father. He says, God the Father causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall even on his enemies. And and I read that and I'm like, gosh, if I had the power over rain <laughs> and sun, yeah. what would I likely do? Certain lawns that would <laughs> be very brown. That's right. Your lawn gets no water. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and I just read that and I'm like, gosh, what, what what is it within the heart of the father that would cause him to give good gifts even to those people that would curse them with the mouth he gave them? Yeah. And uh and as I was looking at it, I was like, the, the thing, the underlying piece is this, that, that God loves people and that people are more important than the actions they commit against us. And, and so that at the end of the day, there's a perspective. I think Jesus wants us to, to grab onto and assist. At the end of the day, people are more important. They're more important than, than the anger that I can hold on to yeah. and the lust that's, that's driving me. And, uh, and as I look at that, I, I go, man, is that something that I do and live with? Do I really believe that people are more important than whatever it is I'm trying to achieve or, or whatever it is that they're, I feel like they're holding me from? And, I, and as, as I think about that, I'm like, man, at the end of the day, let me be about that. Yeah. Let me feel that people are more important than, than whatever it is I'm trying to achieve or whatever I feel like they're hindering me from. Yeah, which is hard, which is, yeah, I mean, why we'd even – encourage, I mean, I'm trying to encourage myself (laughs) along with others Mm -hmm. that, you know, this is something to be praying through. You know, this is something to be going for the Lord because thankfully God's not just like, hey, figure it out. He's given us his Holy Spirit as our counselor, as our guide, the one who can search our innermost thoughts. And so we ask the Spirit, you know, God, 
search me, know me, like show me where is it that I'm I'm harboring bitterness or unforgiveness? Because mm-hmm. I mean, we were talking in kind of some other conversations, and it's like it it almost is one of those things that will just flare up, right? And you don't even you almost didn't even see it coming, and yet in a certain context or in a certain conversation or in talking about a certain issue, all of a sudden you're like, oh snap, I'm really upset. Mm. at that parent, or I'm still upset at my spouse, or I'm, you know, whatever it might right. be. Um, so asking the the Holy Spirit to be convicting you right. in the midst of that, but even beyond that, asking your community, like turning to the people around you and, and telling them to take a, you know, hard, honest look at your, at your life and say, hey, do you, do you see unforgiveness? Is there bitterness that you see in my life? Or do I yeah. talk negatively about certain people or situations uh, have, do you pick up on that? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes we're – if we have it long enough, you just become blind to it, right? right. Long-term bitterness, you, you just – you're blinded towards it. So right. uh, we need Accountability and, and deep prayer yeah. are crucial to, to move us past that. So, yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, we have a couple quick announcements. Actually, just one announcement that we're making here. Um, over at our Southwood campus, we, uh, we have an event called Bring Your Own Pumpkin. Holla. And it's going to be Friday, October 28th. So this coming Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. over at Gabbard Park. You can find the details on that uh, at our Facebook page. That's Grace College Life uh, or on our website at www.grace-bible.org to come connect and hang out and carve up your pumpkin. That you bring yourself. Yes, that and, you BYOP. And to clarify, there are ducks at Gabbard Park. I don't know if you needed anything else to add to the excitement. But Vicious, there are ducks. Pumpkin loving ducks. Oh, that would be cool. You should see. You should see if they'll eat some. It would be a awesome. good experiment. That's awesome. Hey, well, join us next week as we continue our, our journey in the Sermon on the Mount, Upside Down Living. And thank you so much for joining us on the Grace College Podcast. Absolutely. Have a great week.